Hello there, I'm Stuart Lowe, and this is the Jodcast, a podcast about astronomy by astronomers at the University of Manchester's Joddle Bank Observatory. Each month or so, we'll tell you some of the latest things happening in astronomy. We'll also tell you what you can see in the night and sometimes the daytime skies, and we'll be interviewing any astronomer that happens to be passing by, or those that aren't screening their calls. Okay, I said that this was a podcast by astronomers, so let me introduce some of those that will be our regulars. First is Nick Rattenbury. Hi there. Tell us what you do, Nick. I'm a postdoc here at Jodrell Bank. That means I've finished my PhD and I'm now a real live scientist doing real live science stuff. Moving along, we have Dave Alt. What do you do, Dave? I'm the editor of the podcast. Oh. Jodcast, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so we do whatever you tell us. To. Yes, I am the one with all the power. Super. As this is our pilot show, we're going to take you around one of Jodrell's most notable features, that being the 250-foot diameter Lovell Telescope. That's 76 metres in new money. Thank you, Stuart. And I will be talking to one of the scientists who used this telescope to discover a fascinating astronomical object. So earlier on, Nick and Stuart went on a tour of the Lovell Telescope with Ian Morrison, who's Jodrell's operations manager and we join them at the base of the Lovell Telescope, just entering the telescope compound. Right. We're now going into the telescope compound. Um, the railway track has actually got two pairs of rails, and it's got inner bogies and outer bogies. We're standing beside one of the outer bogies at the moment, but as we walk about 20 or 30 feet, we'll cross over the outer pair of rails, and we're now coming up to the inner pair and mounted on the bogey, just to our left now, is one of four azimuthal drive motors. These are the motors that make the telescope drive around in what's called azimuth, which is just round to the right, round to the left. Yep. Okay. We're now going to climb onto the telescope structure. We go up some stairs. small walkway. So we're at 12 feet off the ground or something at that moment. Yeah. And we've come to the base of one of the lifts in the tower. I'm just which pressing the button. There's, there's two towers which hold up the bowl. Um, one of them's a red tower and one of them's a green tower. Which, which one are we at? How, do you tell, how would you tell the difference? Right, I think we're standing at the base of red tower when we actually get up to the tower top, we'll know because you simply have to look down and see what the colour of the floor is. Ah, that's clever. <laughs> red tower's got red floors, green tower's got green floors. From a distance, you can tell which is which because, in fact, green tower has an extra level. They used to have receivers up there way back in the 1960s. Now all the receivers are in the main control building. Right, well, the lift's arrived, so we open the outer door, we open the inner door. You guys get in. It's a tight squeeze. It is a tight squeeze. We can all just about fit in. It's four of us. Shut the outer door, the inner door, and we press the second to top button because the top one is an alarm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to press that. We're now moving upwards. I'm afraid there are no windows. We could do with a nice uh, panoramic view out the side, but sadly that wasn't put in when it was built. Suspense is quite exciting. Yeah. Right, we've now come inside the tower top. Oh, um, we've arrived. We've arrived, so after the second click you can open the inner door and open the outer door. And in fact we've come up green tower because the floors are green. It's not the brightest of days, but over to the west we can quite often see one of our other telescopes, the telescope at uh, Pickmere, which is towards Northwich. And to the right we can see Alderley Edge 
and over towards the left-hand direction we can see the sandstone hills that come up uh, towards the Wirral. Right. And you've got Petford and Castle and Beeston Castle And to the on north the of us over there we can just about see Manchester. Yes, Manchester and, and the airport. And uh, in fact you can see they're building quite a nice new big skyscraper there which hasn't been quite so obvious before. That's really getting up quite well. And below us, in fact, running just or a few hundred yards away, is the railway line from Manchester to Crewe, which at the moment is having work done to it, so there are no trains. So we're not being interfered with. If so we look what at kind of interference does the railway line cause? Well, hopefully not very much. The catenary here is built specially to try and prevent any arcing between the, the cables and the actual uh, pantographs that are on the top of the train. So it's an electrified railway. It is an electrified Plastic. railway. It's been here since about 1963, and this section was done specially to try and minimise any possible interference. If we look out in the other window, um, we're looking towards Mokop, uh, which is a rather nice ridge that runs along the eastern side of the Cheshire Plain. Um, we can see... In fact, Sutton Common and there's a, a microwave link tower over on the left and then there's a valley that goes off to, to Leek and then we see a nice ridge coming up which is the cloud which is above Congleton and then the top of that ridge runs along to Mo Cop. There's a nice folly on the top you can see and then we're looking down towards Kidsgrove and Stoke-on-Trent. So the microwave link tower, is that related to...? No, it's not related to us. That's used to carry a lot of the main communications all the way up the spine of, of England and then, in fact, across to Ireland. But I suspect now that much of those signals are carried by fibre optic links. Uh, in front of us, in fact, we can actually see uh, two of the Jodrell telescopes. The 13-metre one is almost directly below. That's a telescope that looks at pulsars. Beyond that is the Mark II telescope, which forms... Uh, the home station, really, of the Merlin Array, the multi-element radio-linked interferometer network. It's an array that stretches from the Welsh borders across to Cambridge. The signals from those telescopes are brought back to Jodrell Bank using microwave radio links, and, in fact, just in front of us is the link tower, which contains or holds the dishes that bring those signals back. In fact, the height of that tower is 150 foot, and that's virtually horizontal to us. So at this point, we're about 150 foot above the ground. Okay, well, I'm now going to use one of the keys in my pocket. It's a very special key because if you undo this, um, first of all, having got it in my hand, there is no way the telescope can move. There's a lot of things for health and safety <laughs> reasons. Really From where we go here, we don't want to be there when the telescope's moving. So I have to put the key I brought from the control room into one slot and rotate it and that's actually opened the door it also allows me to remove another key, a safety key which I can take away and also have in my pocket. So the door is now open. That stops someone locking us out on the dish. Exactly. And uh, moving that, that's basically lifting the lever on a gate that allows us to actually go on to the rotating structure that would go up and down the elevation. So I've now moved off the tower side onto that, and we're going to walk up some steps. And as we walk up here, we can actually see another of Jodrell's telescopes, the 7-metre telescope, right. which originally came from Woomera. It did. In fact, in the 13-metre and the 7-metre were both used as tracking uh, and telemetry uh, antennae for the Woomera rocket range in the days way back in the 60s when we were developing a rocket called Blue Streak. So uh, when that range was uh, sort of dismantled, we were asked if we'd like to have a telescope. So our engineers went there, dismantled the telescopes. They were shipped back by the Ministry of Defence, brought here, and we've been able to erect them and use them. The little 7-metre telescope we use for our undergraduate um, astronomers to actually come and do some real radio astronomy here at Jodrell Bank. So, in fact, there's a very nice view of both the control room that's almost immediately below us, and then we've got the 13-metre, the 7-metre, and the Mark II telescopes lying beyond it. So, Ian, we're standing on part of the telescope that actually will move up and down. It will. We, we, the, the towers themselves move round and round with yeah, the bogies on the road. Exactly. Now we're standing on a little platform which is 
if we were to stand here when the telescope was moving up and down, we would be tipped off. We'd be tipped off, absolutely. And we're just below a, a very big rack which basically drives the telescope in elevation. There are two motors in the top of the tower that actually have gears that work on this rack. The rack is interesting because it's in fact second hand. It was in fact the rack from a 15 and a half inch gun turret mounting from one of the World War II battleships. I think it was HMS uh, Royal Sovereign. And we have a similar rack on the other side. You can imagine that trying to tilt this large structure is not dissimilar in trying to move a very large gun turret. So we actually got those from Rothice Dockyard as the battleships were being uh, dismembered after the war. So a good bit of recycling. Absolutely. Now we're going to walk across uh, about 100 feet or so, the walkway, and we're so say, about 150 foot above the ground. It's a long way down. <laughs> Some people don't like this, but uh, as long as I feel safe, I don't feel like drop something over the edge to hear the sound of it hitting the ground, but I don't think it would reach back up again. Okay, so we've walked across from the tower top. We're now going to climb a flight of about uh, 30 steps to go inside the original bow of the telescope, which is above us. The underside is painted grey. So this is from 1957. And the surface immediately above our head was built, as you rightly say, and completed in 1957, it's the original surface of the telescope. In 1971, the telescope was very extensively rebuilt. Two big semicircular wheel girders were added to take a fair weight of the bowl, and we see those, in fact, just beneath us. And a new surface was actually constructed within the old, but in fact, considerably above the old, um, and we're now going to walk in to a sort of a cavern which is between the original surface below and the new surface above. So let's climb up into it. So it's, it's quite likely that uh, the, the sound quality will have changed here because there'll be echoes. Um, it's not just because we've added reverb later. It's no, I think it's actually echoing. This is for real. And it, it's really quite an interesting place to be. Uh, I have to say that in a little part of, or the upper part of the old surface there are a few little holes so it's almost like looking up at the sky and seeing some constellations uh, we obviously don't walk up there but through the old surface which really has no uh, structural requirements now are steel girders that in fact lift above our head about um, something like 30 feet above our head uh, is the underside of the old surface in the middle and we're looking up at new galvanized steel panels. The surface has been completely replaced. Basically, took about three summers, 2001 to 2003. So this was the new surface that was put in the 1970s, was replaced again? was replaced again. It had begun to become somewhat rusty and uh, was deteriorating to quite a large extent. And happily, we were able to obtain a grant to completely resurface it and we now have a beautiful white surface and what we'll do now is to climb up uh, we have to go up a vertical ladder as well to come out actually within the bowl so that's what okay. we'll do just before we go in there's, there's numbers all the way around are they the different sectors yes the so numbers are written the... the numbers are written onto the old surface so that the engineers who are clambering above roped up uh, can actually see which sector they are working on because when this new surface was put in, it had to be set to make the right parabolic shape. And to do that, underneath each of the about 360 panels, there are six stainless steel adjusting screws and bolts. And they were given tables telling them precisely how much to adjust them to make the panels fit the right parabolic shape. The measurements were made using a laser system uh, operating from the focus, looking down on the surface and measuring the distances. So they obviously need to know which panels they were adjusting. By painting them on the surface beneath, they could obviously see Look quite easily. Look through and see the exactly. We've climbed onto another platform, which is roughly halfway between the old surface and the new. Um, to my right, there are further steps that take us up to a lift, which is the way that the engineers get up to the focus of the telescope. That's with all the equipment, like well, the receivers. Well, the equipment 
the large-scale equipment is actually winched up, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Okay. But the small-scale equipment and the engineers themselves will go into this lift. It climbs up or runs up the side of the focus tower, and in fact, to get into the focus box, they have to climb out of the top of it. <laughs> so it's quite an interesting lift to use. It's called an Alimac lift, and uh, we can actually see that, and it's sort of cogged uh, tooth running up, the rack running up through a hole through the surface, and in fact up the side of the focus box. Okay, so now I have to actually use another key in my pocket, which is not that one. It's called the bowl access key. This is to unlock a, a cover which is covering the base of the ladder here, um, presumably to stop anyone being able to climb up. Absolutely. So this is called bowl access, it's key F. Quite a hard one to use actually, and you don't want to drop it because it can actually go all the way down to the ground. Probably. So I put that in, that's let me release a catch, and now the actual ladder is available for us to climb up. We've got about three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, about 15 rungs to climb. We're protected by some hoops behind us, so it's just a one, two, one, two, climbing our way up to the bowl itself. While the other guys are out on the dish getting cold, we thought we would tell you about one of the extreme astronomical objects that are observed by the very telescope that the three of them are currently climbing. Nick spoke to Dr. Michael Kramer earlier on, and here's a short introduction about pulsars. Pulsars are fascinating because they're a possible end of a star. Stars live for a certain period of time and then they die. At the end of some star's life, there is a big explosion, and most of the mass of the core of the star gets crushed down to a small, dense little object, which we call a neutron star. Some of these neutron stars spin very rapidly, sending out beams of radiation out into space. And we can hear these beams of radiation with our radio telescopes. These objects are called pulsars, and we can learn a lot about stars, physics, and gravity by looking at these pulsars. That's why they are important. I'm interested in pulsars because they represent an extreme form of matter, and extreme form of matter means extreme physics, and I like extreme physics. I spoke with Dr. Michael Kramer at Drodrell Bank Observatory to find out more. Okay, well, thanks very much for, for agreeing to, to, uh, to talk to us about the double pulsars. Uh, perhaps we just start off with a very easy question. How do, how do pulsars actually pulse? What are they pulsing? Well, they're aren't actually pulsating as in going bigger and smaller. Uh, the pulsations you see come from a lighthouse effect. If you stand at a beach and you see a lighthouse, it's, pulsa it's a pulsating light source, but in fact it's a constant beam of light. It's just rotating, and the same thing happens with a, with a pulsar, which has a radio beam along its magnetic axis. And so the magnetic axis is sort of inclined to the rotation axis, just like the Earth. The magnetic pole is not coincident with the rotational pole of the Earth. And so as the pulse rotates, the beam sweeps out the uh, uh, region in space, sort of covering it with radio beams. And whenever the radio beam happens to point towards Earth and the telescope happens to observe it, you can see a pulse every, every time the uh, pulse rotates by. So we know there's about, what, over a thousand pulsars? 1,700 by now, yeah. 1,700 pulsars. Mm. Because it's such a, a, a beamed effect, these pulsars are beaming towards us, Presumably we can only see a pulsar if these beams are beaming straight towards us. So there should be more pulsars out there, which we can't see. Is that, is that true? Indeed, that, that's indeed true. We, we see probably only about a fifth of all the pulsars in the galaxy, uh, potentially. I mean, we haven't discovered them all because our telescopes are not sensitive enough. But we reckon that there are about 100,000 active pulsars in the galaxy, of which about 20,000 are beamed towards Earth. And uh, of those, we have discovered about 1,700 now. So it's still a way to go to see the others. You need to have uh, sensitive radio telescopes mm. for this. How many telescopes are there in the world that can detect these pulsars? It depends on which pulsars you're looking at. Um, there are some pulsars which are really strong, which even small telescopes can observe, like the 30-meter telescope, 42-foot telescope here in, in Jodhpur Bank. We, we follow an, a small number of pulsars every day. They're strong enough to be detected with such a small telescope. 
but for, to see the majority of the pulses and do to actually do some science with them you have to have some big telescopes and there should be about a 160 100 meter class telescope to do some decent science we can do some science with other 30 meter class telescopes as well um, quite a bit actually but uh, for sensitivity and precision you really need the big telescopes so why is the discovery of this double pulsar so interesting ah various um various reasons actually it turns out it is not only an interesting laboratory for um, gravity for which we have used binary pulses in the past but it's also uh, in such a fortunate geometry that we see the system almost completely edge on so we see this the orbit exactly from the side which means the beam of one pulsar has to pass the other pulsar when it's um, directed towards earth and so we can actually study also um, all the physics of the of the plasma and the particles around the pulsar in that system and um, it was one of the holy grails that we sort of were looking for but we didn't really expect to find them because they're very rare and the chance that two beams are pointing towards earth is, is pretty small and it's born in in a process which involves two supernova explosions which are usually so violent that any binary system is being disrupted. And pulses only forever, so you have to catch them in the right time when they're both active and it's a, as I said, beam towards Earth. And so it's, it's, it was very unlikely to find such an object, but uh, I was very lucky. You mentioned uh, binary pulsar systems. Mm. What's the difference between a binary pulsar and a double pulsar? What's the difference? <laughs> yes, it's not so easy to to see. Um, basically, a binary pulsar is a pulsar which has any companion. It could be usually, typically, it's a white dwarf companion. That's the most common uh, combination. We have a few systems which have a main sequence star as a companion. Uh, of those, we have a handful by now. And uh, the, the rarest uh, class is where you have a pulsar with another Newton star as a companion. So a Newton star it's not necessarily a radio pulsar, it has to be active and has to be pointed towards Earth to be sort of classified as a, as a radio pulsar. Um, so we had double Newton star systems in the past where one Newton star was, was visible as a pulsar and the other one was an unseen Newton star where maybe the beam was pointing away from us, maybe the, it wasn't active, had already died. Um, but in this particular case, we have two active radio pulsars orbiting each other. How was the double pulsar discovered? Who discovered it? It was discovered in a collaboration with um, with a number of other people across the world. We used to do survey um, along the galactic plane and then eventually north-south of the galactic plane using the Parkes telescope. And so we discovered the first pulsar in the system in April 2003 when Martha Bourget from Bologna at that time was doing her last observations for the PhD and discover that system, which this one pulsar, which was in a highly um, exciting orbit around an, another unseen Newton star. And um, we observed that system for a few months, and we, we'd always planned to, to have a look whether the other companion may be a radio pulsar pointing towards us, but um, we sort of were busy with teaching and other stuff. <laughs> and so... Um, so Duncan Lorimer actually went to the telescope and, uh, and did help us with the observations on the parks. And he has written some software to analyze some data, which um, we've taken with the Lovell telescope just the night before on a, on a long integration towards a supernova remnant. And we need some special software to analyze this. And so he was looking for a data set um, to test this data on. And so the longest data set he had available readily for him was the observation of, of the pulsar system that we that he has done first day a few hours earlier. So he just ran the data through his program and suddenly there was this pulsation, a different frequency than the pulsar should have been there. And um, so that's how we finally learned about the existence of the other um, active radio pulsar in the system. The, um, the second pulsar is not always visible. It's only strong for two short phases in the orbit. And that is when the when it's sort of protected from the energetic wind that comes from the fast rotating pulsar we discovered first, um, sort of when, it, when it's um, between the, the fast rotating pulsar, as we call it, A, is behind the companion and the Earth. And so that phase lasts only for 
well, a number of minutes or so. And um, so we were always looking sort of at the wrong part of the orbit. And we hadn't just had the, the time to do the complete analysis to look at the whole orbit, which was planned, but Duncan was faster than us. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from the one of the pulsars actually pulsing, sending out these radio beams, mm. we, it actually turns on and off, or it seemed to turn on and off during parts of its orbit. Indeed. It's, it may not be completely turning off. With uh, new observation, more sensitive equipment and so on, we've seen it now also, albeit, albeit much weaker, at other phases in the orbit. At some of them, it's still too weak probably to be detected. But indeed, it's the first time that the, that the visibility of a pulse was modulated during its orbit. And that must come from the interaction with its um, powerful companion. So there's a lot to learn just from the fact that the, one of the pulsars turns itself on and off. It's a huge amount to learn. If you just look at the papers published by other colleagues, I mean, it's a whole industry by now. This is really the most exciting laboratory, close for plasma physics, for GR, and understanding pulsars in general. Uh, it's, it's really an amazing system. Thank you very much indeed. You're most welcome. If you want to hear the full interview with Michael Kramer, you can download it off our website. Just follow the links that you'll see there. Now we rejoin Stuart, Nick and Ian on top of the dish. So we're just about to emerge out onto the dish. Oh my goodness. It's all completely white. It's strange, you completely lose the horizon. You do. I mean, you have no idea that you're getting on for 200 feet now above the actual surface of the Cheshire Plain. We're within the bowl, we just see the rim totally white around us and above that the sky which today I'm afraid is also a rather dull grey colour. If you're in here on a sunny day, in fact you, you really do need to have sunglasses on, you can be quite easily blinded. It's like being in a snowfield. Absolutely, it's just like being in a snowfield. So we've actually come up through one entry into the bowl. Just beside it is a, a large square, something like four feet on a side, um, rectangular aperture, and that's in fact through which we bring the receivers. We have one winch system that brings them up from the ground uh, to a point just to the left of where we're standing underneath. They're then brought across beneath here and there's a winch on top of the tower that can actually winch the receiver right the way up. Uh, inside. So that's the way we get the heavy things up. Um, there is in fact a ladder that you could climb up to the focus box on. I wouldn't want to do it. This is there if necessary. Uh, and we can actually see the rack of the lift running up the far side of the focus uh, tower. At the top there's a sort of a lantern, uh, an open aperture, and we're looking up directly into the feed which will be able to receive the radio signals that we're trying to detect and pass them into the receiver which is inside the focus box above us. Uh, the focus box is about an eight foot cube, it's actually reasonably big, and the receiver in there is cooled to something like 10 to 12 Kelvin, so that's about minus 260, 260 Celsius, so it's pretty cold, uh, and that's done using a pressurized helium refrigeration system, and there are pipes, stainless steel pipes, running up from here to the focus box carrying the highly pressurized helium at the top. That helium is expanded, which then cools, and then the, the low pressure helium is brought back down again to be recompressed. So why is it cooled to such phenomenally low temperatures? Well, the receivers use the best transistors it's possible to buy. They come from America. But even so, the receiver at room temperature will produce a certain amount of noise just because the electrons in some of the components are rushing around. It's called thermal noise. If you cool the receiver, then those electrons get cold as well and they don't rush around as much, they don't interact and bustle each other. It's quite like us really at the moment because we're quite cold up here <laughs> Absolutely. in mid-December. Yes. Precisely. It's a little bit like um, cold-blooded animals, you know, the colder they are the less they move. So if you cool the electrons down they don't produce as much noise. So it makes the receivers uh, virtually as good as the laws of physics allow you to do. And really there's not a lot we can do now to improve our receivers. They're essentially state-of-art, and if we want to get more sensitive systems, we either have to have bigger telescopes, which is very expensive, or to somehow be able to use more data, which is what we're trying to do. Broader bandwidths mean we get more signals, and we can detect fainter objects. 
Okay, uh, well we're walking on the surface, I don't want to walk too far because obviously that's not good, but the panels are about two and a half millimetres thick, so there's no danger of going through, and you can see they're in individual panels, each of which can be, or the surfaces in individual panels, each of which can be adjusted to make the shape uh, as precise as we can. So how, accurate, how accurate are the positions? Of a the good question. Well, basically we're now down to just a few millimetres in precision across the whole of the surface. Which is 76 metres. Exactly. So that, that's quite a task to, to undertake. It means a telescope with this new surface can be used down to wavelengths of a few centimetres. Now, before, with the old surface, we could go down to about 18 or 16 centimetres. Now we can go down to just three or so. So it's a major difference. Okay, I think we should actually come off the surface now and look at one or two other places in the telescope. So I'll lead the way once at a time. Now we did actually do a calculation some time ago to look at how many Rice Krispies you would fit inside the, the Lovell telescope. It was something like, it was more than 600 billion of them. Altogether, billion Rice Krispies. Yeah, more, more stars than there are in the entire galaxy would fit inside this this bowl. That's a good thing to know. It's very useful. Science is a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> but actually, the whole structure would collapse before you filled even a tenth of it with Rice Krispies because it's not designed to hold Rice Krispies. Not at all, no. Okay, I'm going to actually close the, uh, the bowl access. That should prevent anybody else uh, climbing up there. And uh, what we'll now do is to work our way back across the tower and have a look at what's inside the tower top. Quite nice and cosy and sheltered in between the two dishes. Um, do we have any do we have any small creatures and birds trying to nestle? Well, we, we do have some birds, but we also have a, a falcon, I think now, which is pretty good at getting rid of them. So uh, we have our own sort of anti-bird system. So now we're walking across the the gantry back towards the edge of the dish. Uh, it's almost like a, a floor of girders here. Obviously, with big gaps in the floor, I wouldn't like to walk across it. But, <laughs> but it's this is the the bottom of the sort of drum around the edge of the the bowl, a drum of girders. It's a long way down. So we've come back into the green tower. I remember because it's got green floor. Actually, has its own telephone as well. Right, well, I just locked off the uh, door, and now to do that, I have to put a, a key in. The bowl access key. Sorry, this key, G, I think. So, the key's gone back in the door, and the other key has been removed. We've now come off the telescope structure, and we're back into the tower top, so it'd be quite safe for the telescope to move in elevation should they need to do so. That's the first thing. We've got a vertical ladder that climbs up about, uh, probably about 60 feet, and we're going to climb right to the top of the tower to have a look at the bearings and so on that actually make the telescope, uh, or enable the telescope to rotate in elevation. So here we go. So we've got some more windows. Yes, see, we see it is slightly puffed having climbed up those uh, flights of vertical um, ladder, which is quite a way. There's some large doors on the outside here, Ian, of the tower. Yes, well, obviously we've got some very heavy, heavy um, equipment up here. The bearing, which actually supports the telescope, must be something like six feet in diameter of the interior and the outer side of the bearing must be something like about 10 feet across. So obviously, if we have to replace it, that's a major bit of a lift we have to do. And you can see above us is a pretty heavy crane, and uh, that can actually take any of the major components in here, take them out sideways, and then drop them down to the ground below. Not often we have to do that, but certainly one bearing had to be replaced a few years ago. 
Okay, well, the main bearing is just in front of us. Um, if you look closely, you can actually see cables going through it. Because obviously we have to get the cables on and off the telescope. They come up the tower from, in fact, from, from the control room, and they actually come up in really quite thick cables, so there's no very little loss, perhaps an inch or so across. But then, in fact, we convert them into quite thin cables to go through the cable turner. So this is through the, the axis of Basically, it's right the through the centre of the bearing. And then on the other side, we convert them back into to, to, to quite large cables to, to, to keep the loss as low as possible. So the reason for this is because when the dish tips sideways in, in elevation, um, the, the cables would get twisted around horribly if, if they didn't go through a system like this. So they have a very clever way to make sure they don't get tangled up. Uh, right at the extreme end of the bearing, we have an encoder that measures the angle that the telescope is pointing at. We obviously can co work out with our computers the angle in azimuth, that's round and round, and also the angle in elevation, up and down, which the telescope must be at every moment of time in order to track the radio source around the sky. And so we measure that angle in elevation at the top of each tower at the end of the bearings, and we take the average of the two readings. But we're also thinking of putting a measuring system on the wheel girder itself to give us another way of measuring the actual elevation. How now, accurately can you, can you point this massive telescope? Um, it's a few minutes of arc. It's pretty good, actually. Quite, quite surprisingly good. Now, what's a minute of so arc? It's a few thousand well, degrees. 360 degrees all the way around. There are 60 minutes in a degree, so we're basically working at around a sixth degree for one arc minute, and we can actually do somewhat better than that. Maybe a tenth of an arc minute. It has improved with the upgrade of the telescope in the last couple of years. Now, in the climb up a step, I'm passing some of the greasing system that's used to keep everything, uh, you know, suitably lubricated. And we go around to the left. And uh, I'm going to try and open a door, which isn't too easy to open. So we've got buckets of grease next to us. That lets you get access... If we can open it. Right, so what we've done, we've opened a very thick steel door that gives us access into the back of the rack system by which the telescope is moved in elevation. And just to the left, we can see the rack, which is about a foot wide, and each of the teeth are about sort of three inches width and about three inches in height. So it's a pretty major rack system. And looking below, you can actually see two big gear wheels that basically work on the rack. I can see one from this side, in fact. And we have one on this side, one on the other side, and they're basically working together to make the telescope rotate round in elevation. Now, obviously, those gears are below us, so somewhat below us, the motors that drive them must exist. And in fact, we're going to drop down to the intermediate level, below where we are now, to see the motor system and all the gearing system that makes these cogs. The cogs that drive the rack must be about two feet in diameter. So it's a fairly hefty piece of engineering. The two, the two cogs actually work slightly against each other to try and take up any slack to make the drive very smooth. Okay. Now, one thing you can actually see here, as well as having... Uh, coaxial cables, these are copper cables that bring signals up and down you can actually see a junction box with lots of fibre optic cables coming in and out because in fact the whole telescope is fibre as well we can actually use light carrying data up and down on fibre optic cables as opposed to using signals down copper cables which way is it now safe to move the telescope? in fact anywhere you like, you can be up here when the telescope's moving, it shakes a little bit but we're quite safe, and we can use the lift up and down the tower uh, no matter what the telescope is doing. Okay, we're going to go down to the next level where the motors are that actually drive the telescope in elevation. So be careful just coming onto the steps here. Get to the drop. Okay, well, in front of us is a pretty impressive network of gearing. There are two motors, 
and they've got cooling fans above them. They're brand new. They're part of the new drive system. Uh, just to the right of them, there are brake systems that can actually brake them so the telescope can't move. And then there is a pretty amazing gearing system with, I think, one, two, three, four, five stages of gearing. Each time the gear is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and in fact, the gears which are attached to the rear of the little cogs we saw, the cogs were two feet across, those gears must be about five feet, I would have thought, something like that. Uh, in fact, it is said that the gearing ratio is so high that when you actually calculate what the motors are doing, you ignore the fact there's a telescope attached at all. That the, the torque is required is really very, very low because there's such a gear gearing down of the rotation of the motors. That's quite interesting. So there are two pairs of motors, one of them driving each of these major cogs that work on the rack that make the telescope up, go up and down in elevation. We also have the lift motor to the left of us, so if somebody decided to call the lift from down below, that would start making noises, but no one's there at the moment. Um, it just shows you the sort of scale of the engineering that uh, we have. It's a bit like being in a, a 1950s ship, isn't it? We all we it, it does the feel, engine. it has a very naval mm -hmm. feel about it. It does, well. That's possibly to do with the, the World War II battleship gun turrets. I, well. I think that's probably right. Okay, so we'll go back down to the um, lowest floor in the... And while they make their way down off the telescope, here's Paul Carr to tell us about the final stages of an exciting seven-year mission and how you can get involved. Paul Carr tells us about Stardust. In the pre-dawn hours of Sunday the 15th of January, sky watchers living across the northwestern United States will witness a fireball streak across the sky, heading towards an impact point on the U.S. Air Force Utah Test and Training Range southwest of Salt Lake City. This short-lived but dramatic spectacle will mark the last few minutes of a seven-year and $168 million odyssey by NASA's Stardust spacecraft to collect and return samples of cometary and interstellar dust from deep space and return them safely to Earth for study. It is hoped that because some of the particles captured will be older than the Sun and planets, analysis of their chemical composition will tell us something about the origins of our solar system. Stardust was launched from Cape Canaveral on a Delta rocket back in February 1999. It orbited the Sun three times and received a gravity-assisted kick from the Earth as it made a flyby on January 15, 2001 on its carefully choreographed 3.4 billion kilometre route to a rendezvous with the comet Wild 2. Comets are believed to be dirty snowballs of frozen hydrocarbons which orbit the Sun in highly elliptical orbits with periods of hundreds of years Spending most of their time in the frozen outer parts of the solar system, they are heated by the Sun as their orbits periodically take them back towards the inner planets. As their surface temperature rises, the outer material is boiled off, creating the characteristic comet tail. In January 2004, the spacecraft passed to within just 240 kilometres of the comet. It flew through the cloud of dust swarming around Wild 2, known as the coma. The delicate cometary dust particles were captured in a racket-like scoop deployed by Stardust and made from a honeycombed layer of a special jelly-like substance called aerogel. Aerogel is composed of a pure silicon dioxide and possesses remarkable properties. It is 1,000 times less dense than glass and is 99.8% air, with a consistency which has been likened to frozen smoke. It is this amazing wispy structure which gives aerogel the ability to stop the high-speed dust particles in their tracks and hold them within the gel without damage. The tennis racket-shaped dust collector deployed by Stardust actually has two sides. One side was used to collect the particles from Comet Wild 2 during its brief encounter, while the other side was deployed for a total of 192 days whilst en route to the comet to capture interstellar dust particles. Stardust received a battering as it flew through the storm of particles surrounding the comet, with onboard sensors indicating that the outer layer of protective shielding was breached at least 10 times during the spacecraft's 22,000 km per hour encounter with the comet. In spite of this, onboard telemetry has indicated that the spacecraft is still in a very good shape. Whatever the final outcome of its fiery return to Earth, Stardust has already achieved many of its original objectives. These include a successful flyby of the asteroid Anne Frank in November 2002, which was used as a dress rehearsal for the Wild 2 encounter. Stardust has also relayed back a total of 72 images of Wild 2's rugged surface 
which was found to be quite unlike that seen on other comets, with steep near-vertical cliffs, overhangs, pinnacles, house-sized boulders, and 100-metre-deep surface depressions. One of the most exciting findings was the discovery that the comet had more than 20 localised hotspots and jets, which were found to be spewing gas and dust into space. In addition, Stardust's onboard instruments carried out real-time analysis of some of the captured particles, recording their size, frequency and chemical composition. Following a successful return to Earth, the work of the project scientists really starts. The sample return capsule will be transported to a clean room where the dust samples will be taken from the spacecraft to various laboratories for detailed analysis. It is estimated that there will be approximately one million cometary dust particles from the Wild 2 dust capture scoop, compared with just a few dozen interstellar dust particles suspended in the aerogel of the second interstellar dust scoop. Finding dust particles from Comet Wild 2 will present no problem for the small team analysing the aerogel. However, looking for the much more elusive interstellar dust particles in the second collector presents scientists with a significant problem. Using current techniques, the Stardust team estimate that working on their own, it could take up to 20 years to complete their search for all of the captured interstellar dust grains. This is because the task involves using a high-power microscope to examine more than 1.6 million images of the aerogel in the collector. To cut down the analysis time, the Stardust program is offering the chance for the public to be a part of the analysis team through a project known as Stardust at Home. If you successfully pass a web-based training program, you will be able to download a virtual microscope and hunt for the interstellar dust grains yourself using images formed out to registered volunteers. As well as offering you the chance to look at the first sample collector to return from deep space, the Stardust team have said that the discoverer of an interstellar dust particle will appear as a co-author on any scientific paper by the Stardust at Home collaboration announcing the discovery of the particle. Details of how you can register your interest to be part of the analysis team can be found by clicking the link given on the Jodcast website. And now for those of us who aren't lucky enough to see the Stardust capsule fall back down to Earth, here's Ian Morrison to tell us what to look out for in the January night sky. In the southern sky during January, we have one of the perhaps the most beautiful of all the skyscapes that we can see. If you look south, somewhere about 10 o'clock on a January evening, particularly as we get towards the end of the month, you can't help but see the constellation of Orion, Orion the Hunter. There are three stars in almost a straight line. They form his belt. With binoculars below that, you can actually see his sword, which includes a wonderful object called the Orion Nebula. He has his shoulders delineated by two stars. The upper left is called Betelgeuse, one of the brightest and largest stars that we have anywhere near our own sun. In fact, its size would spread out to about the orbit of Jupiter in our solar system. It's a very reddish star. The knees of Orion, certainly the left one, is formed by the star Rigel, another very bright star, this time it's a blue-white star, a blue supergiant. So Orion has some very bright stars, and it's a constellation that you can hardly miss. He's holding a shield towards the onslaught of Taurus the bull, which is up to the right of Orion. You can see a red star here too. It's called Aldebaran, the eye of the bull. And the actual shape of the head of the bull is made up with a sort of a triangle of stars that form the Hyades cluster. In fact, Aldebaran is not part of that cluster. It's about halfway between us and them. But nevertheless, together, they make a very interesting bull's face. He has two horns up to the left. If you continue on in the same direction from the belt of Orion through the Hyades cluster, you come to another little cluster called the Pleiades cluster, sometimes called the Seven Sisters. In fact, there are about nine stars that you perhaps might see under ideal conditions. They're actually the Seven Sisters plus their mum and dad, which makes up nine. They're a lovely sight to see, as are the Hyades, with a pair of binoculars. 
if you work up to the left of the shoulder of Orion, you should come across two fairly bright stars. They're called Castor and Pollux, and they're the head of the heavenly twins. Gemini is the constellation. Down to their left is a single bright star called Procyon, and that's in the constellation of Canis Minor. And over to their left is the constellation of Cancer. With binoculars, you can see a nice cluster of stars right at its heart, but otherwise it's not very bright. The reason I've mentioned it is because in Cancer, at the moment, you will see the lovely planet Saturn. So that's one quite bright object. Now, binoculars won't really show that it's a planet, but any small telescope will enable you to see the lovely ring system that surrounds it, and possibly the brightest of its satellites called Titan. There's another planet in the southern sky that one can hardly fail to miss. If you find the Pleiades cluster, which is up to the right of Orion through Taurus, and work your way around to the right, you should see a bright reddish or salmony pink coloured object. That's the planet Mars. It was closest to us in about October, early November, so it's now moving away and getting less bright. But in fact, because it's less bright, the colour, this lovely reddish colour, is actually more obvious. When it's at its brightest, it somewhat overpowers our eye and it looks whiter. And I looked at it the other night, it certainly looks a lovely reddish-pink colour. So there's a good chance in the evening sky to see two of the nicest planets, Mars and Saturn. January really is a lovely time to observe the southern sky. With Orion, Taurus, Gemini all bright constellations visible, and with two lovely planets, Mars and Saturn, there as well. You couldn't have a better time to look at the sky, either with your eyes or perhaps help with a pair of binoculars. Good hunting. Thank you, Amy. We look forward to seeing you again next month. In February's issue of the Jodcast, you can hear Stuart find out why the solar system is oscillating like a gigantic jelly. And also next month, we'll be starting a new feature on the Jodcast, Ask an Astronomer, where we'll be putting all of your difficult questions to Dr Tim O'Brien, a resident researcher here at Jodrell Bank. Send all of your questions by the website at www.jodcast.net and we'll put the best to Dr Tim O'Brien. That about wraps it up then for this session of the Judcast. It just leaves me for me to thank uh, Dr. Nick Rattenbury. You're welcome. See you later. And Dr. Stuart Lowe. Bye. Thank you ever so much for listening. Let us know your comments and your suggestions. And this is David Alt signing off. Goodbye. Here at the Jodcast, we'd love to hear from you if you have any astronomical news or features or anything that you would like to hear on the Jodcast. We're especially looking out for people who can write some music for us, some incidental music, some theme music, any sort of music at all. If you'd like to get in contact, the address is on the website. And we look forward to seeing you next month. Goodbye.